Hello and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. So I spent a week locked in a hotel with a bunch of very um, knowledgeable guys from the plants with a few other kind of, at that time, I guess you could label as bright young things who were in operations. And we were somehow anointed to be the change leaders. Today I'm talking to Rich Deakin, who is the programme director for UK Research and Innovation's Low Cost Nuclear Challenge. Rich says, and I'll paraphrase, in a career you're lucky if you get one major role that challenges you to identify the cause of a problem and then lead a team that can solve it. I'm fortunate to have held several roles that easily fits this, and I'm sure we're going to find out about those. Rich is based in Melbourne in Derbyshire. Welcome, Rich. Good afternoon and hi. Hi. So, Rich, you, you grew up in South Yorkshire. Uh, your dad and your brother were both coal miners. Um, and then you went to Sheffield to read metallurgy. So tell me about the young Rich and how all that happened. Yeah, the, the, the coal mining thing's kind of interesting. So I guess by any standard, if you, if you can imagine... And the industrial north in the in the kind of late eight, well late seventies early eighties. I was very much in a in a working class kind of family. Um, so my mum was a secretary in a foundry. My dad and my brother were underground mechanics. My dad was always kind of aspirational in that he he wanted a better better standard for his kids, which is always true. So just about the time I was born, he moved to a small um, farming village on the outskirts of uh, East Barnsley. Um, called Ardsley. I had a great upbringing. It was fantastic. Very supportive parents, uh, lovely place, played in farmland all the time. Um, it was new house, new village, new sun. Um, so I went to a comprehensive school, certainly the apple of my mother's eye because I used to get pretty decent school reports by somewhere with fair means of foul, yeah. And then I had a really interesting experience. In the area I grew up in, South Yorkshire, there was an education model that said at 16, you leave the school environment and you go to what was called a sixth form college. So suddenly from being 16 in a slight, you know, in a very formulaic timetable classroom environment, Mondays and Tuesdays were for lectures, Wednesday mornings was for labs, Wednesday afternoons were for sports, and Thursday and Friday were pretty free. The sporting stuff was great, the free time wasn't, and I basically crashed and burned in my A-levels. I just wasn't disciplined about managing my own free time. I suddenly had a lot of freedom, different environment, and I wasn't really disciplined, if I'm honest, Andy. I was going to be, I was, I was looking to be a civil engineer. Of course, I, I, I'd got offers, but I didn't get my grades. So I went through a clearing system, and I got an invite to go to see, see um, the Department of Materials and Metallurgy in Sheffield. And herein's the first lucky break. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, of course, I didn't know what metallurgy was. In fact, I'm still not quite sure I do now, actually, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. So just for those listening to this, metallurgy really is the study of metals and alloys, isn't it? And material science, 
sort of widens that out to other materials like polymers and graphite and concretes and all of that sort of stuff, ceramics and so on, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I do think is a great subject um, because it, it gave me a broad background in, in most of the engineering subjects and a, deep, and a depth of perception in one particular one, which was materials science. And to be honest, if you're going to get pulled into a university environment or a, or a degree environment, in any subject, you might as well go to the world's home of metallurgy and special alloys, which is Sheffield. So I was learning from world experts, you know, it's fantastic. And I wasn't devastated that I hadn't got my core subject and into my first choice degree program, because to be honest, I'm not sure as, an, as a young adult, you actually have a breadth of experience of any idea what you'll eventually find your way to do. And the, the key thing is, learn from failure but learn from success and having and I thought quite hard about how had they gone from being in the top two or three people in students in my school at 16 to failing my A-levels and I thought about the disciplines and the rigor and all that kind of thing yeah and I can and the key learning point was well just be disciplined you can enjoy stuff but know when you have to work and it was almost a, it was almost a learning experience and a wake-up call around just managing my own time. By just by doing that, it never felt hard work. It was a common science year of about 100, and, I don't know, about 170 pupils across the engineering and science faculties. Um, and hey presto, I came top. Next lucky break, um, I end up um, working for, um, at that time, um, the Atomic Energy Authority, International Atomic Energy Authority, down at Harwell. But I did research on, um, materials that are used in fusion reactors and I got a paper published voice swelling and radiation damage in first wall reactor materials in the joint European Taurus in the jet program. How do you think you'd changed during that time as a person you'd sort of learnt to take a sort of structured approach to studying you know to keep on top of things and to um, work on the things that you found harder but as a person how do you think you sort of grew um, it was the first time I'd really broken my apron strings because I never really did that um, when I went to Sheffield because that's quite close to where I lived. You know, I could easily have travelled on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so that experience broadens you as a person because you're in an environment where it's the first time really being paid for work. You don't know anybody. It's the first time you're really in what I'll call a, a command and control to some extent or an organisation where somebody's accountable for your actions. So I think you've got to learn how to deal with that and you've got to learn how to sometimes push back, sometimes embrace it, sometimes take a deep leap of faith and just say, yeah, I'm going to go and throw myself into a new environment. So there's a, there's a few things there about I realised I wasn't nervous of stepping outside my comfort zone. And I've done that almost every every significant move in my life, in personal life and professional life. I've always been prepared to step outside my comfort zone. Now, that's not in a huge way, because I think you've got to look for things where you want to be successful, um, but you don't want to be in a place where you take such a risk that you break yourself. You need some scarring, because scarring makes you stronger, but not necessarily irreparable damage. Yeah. You've got to be careful around this stuff. So was then the move to BNFL in um, West Cumbria? 
No, Springfield's it, Lancaster. Ha- Spring- Lancaster. Are you a Springfield? Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so, how did you find that move, and that sort of step into sort of full time employment? Yeah. In a different organisation to um, Harwell, at least. I went in as a management trainee into a very, very credible and very, very clever group of people who were developing um, a fuel, a, a way of processing uh, powders and fuels called um, the short bindless route. Um, and some, some people in that team went on to become outstanding figures in the industry, to be honest. Um, and I'm very privileged to have met them and worked with them and class them as colleagues and friends. But it was a technical department. Because, I, because I'd somehow managed to get a first-class honours degree from, in materials, people thought I was clever. So they thought I was technical. Right. Qualifications and level of academic achievement do not necessarily align with natural styles and, and needs. And I very quickly learned that actually I wasn't a technical kind of research guy. What I really wanted to do was spend time in operations because operations inevitably dealt with more people issues. Right. Operations are always about managing people and, and drawing together resources. And the important one that's most difficult, where the science is most difficult and where it's difficult to understand the the indicators of success, failure or performance is always around people. And it fascinated me, right? So with the blessing of... Um, a wonderful lady called Sue Ian. I went and banged on the door of an operations director's role for for the oxide fuel lines and said, have you got a job in operations? I'd love to learn. So at 26, 27, I was yeah, running, um, or I was an assistant plant manager to, to some other great people. I was learning an awful lot about operations and technical operations. It was fantastic. If then, if you take operations as a theme in, in where I got to, you very quickly realise operations is around um, and people are very much around um, how do you maximise the sum of the parts? Everybody's got a skill set. Everybody can do certain things. Everybody's got something you can't do. And it's not grade related. It's just learned behaviours and natural skills and capability related. It's not a positional thing. Exactly. It's sort of diversity in its broadest sense, isn't it? You know, you need people of all types, all skills, and one isn't isn't better than the other. They're different, and they're all needed. Yeah. My first car was a Mark 1 Ford Escort. Very common at that time. I needed to change the clutch. So we were a working-class family, and my dad said, well, we can get a clutch from a part shop, so we got a clutch, you know, second-hand clutch plate. And we had the car on uh, ramps in the garden, you know, in the driveway. So my dad... Sourced me a clutch plate from a component yard. And we had the car on the jacks and it's on the ramps on the driveway. Now he's an underground mechanic. He's laid on his back and he's using his fingertips to assess the ta- the Cypertuli needs. How, how to take this thing apart? Because underground mechanics take things apart in the dark. And they can judge the size of a tool by their fingertips. And I walked away from that I thought, I could never do that. You know, I could do other things, but it's a unique skill that's not academic, that's learnt, and it's a talent. And I just could never do that. And it was the first point I really thought about in, in my life where, and I was, far, you know, I was, I was blessed, and my mum and dad put me through university. I was blessed to come out with a great degree and all that kind of stuff and opportunity. But I've never lost sight of, 
in an organisation, people have different talents and the actual benefit and the real driver is how you bring those together to deliver. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's that's really good. So so during your time then at BNFL, or maybe when you, you sort of then you moved to Rolls-Royce as a, as a plant leader, I'm wondering about the sort of challenges you faced and whether they were people challenges or whatever and how you sort of overcame those challenges. First of all, um, when you're a young management trainee, um, you're kind of appointed and expected to be smart. That there's something that says, well, I'm a management trainee and you'll have gone through a difficult selection process, particularly in an industry that's high tech or engineering or fabrication or manufacturing, you know. So somehow there's something that says, well, I'm really smart. And unfortunately, when you walk into an operational environment, the people in there are all highly skilled, hugely committed to what they have to do with their families and working environment. And the last thing they kind of need is some 20 odd year old graduate coming in and saying, I suggest you do it like this. <laughs> that's, that's not the best way to proceed. And if I'm honest, I failed at that when I first started because I'd, I'd maybe been lucky enough to, you know, I'd, I'd had a good degree and I'd come top of a few years in university. So I kind of got myself, I built myself my own halo effect, if you know what that means. Um, and I very quickly, I, I worked with a, a guy who, who I'll, I'll name check him, um, a guy um, called John Haynes, who a lot of people in nuclear will know. He was a, he was a, a ferocious foreman who knew his plant and his people backwards, forwards and inside out. Um, and I became his assistant plant manager. So in theory, John worked for me. <laughs> now, I say in theory. Um, so the one thing I, I would say I, was the real challenge there is, first of all, you've got to recognise other people's talents and authority. So authority is not positional. It's not grade. It's not a given. It's, it's around ability, trust, empathy, understanding... Yeah, it, it's and fundamentally it's about trust and, and the way you work, because it's not about whether you wear a, a tie. It's not about are you the highest grade? It's about will people follow you or work with you because they believe in your approach? Yeah. And I learned a lot from from that because I, I had to learn that. I had to realize that these guys, you know, knew their plants inside out. They didn't necessarily want me leading them in certain ways. Um, I had to lead them in a way that that would work for them, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and leadership styles are different in culture, different places, you know? Exactly, so do you, do you remember sort of consciously changing your behavior and, and the way you did your job in response to that? Yep, so um, I was really lucky to get a little bit of professional training just at the right time. Okay. Um, because Springfields was going through a huge change management program. Right. And change management, so they were, so this was around the time when the industry was changing and the cost of fuel needed to come down. So Springfield is essentially a fuel supplier. And change management's around professionally understanding or understanding how people work, how they interact, how you yourself work and interact, yeah? So I spent a week locked in a hotel with a bunch of very um, knowledgeable guys from the plants with a few other kind of, at that time, I guess you could label as bright young things who were in operations. And we were somehow anointed to be the change leaders. Really? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I guess the thing was, 
you guys are kind of, you haven't quite learned all the ingrained stuff. We're going to give you some new tools and then we're going to give you some air cover to go and play. Okay. But, but interestingly, there was a really deep afternoon where we all looked deep into the well of our souls. And, and I took quite personally and took on board that some of the guys said, well, you've got a reputation, Rich, for being um, aggressive and demanding and hard driven, but not assertive. That's interesting. You know? Yeah. How did, how did you take that? Oh, badly. <laughs> badly at first. Badly at first, yeah. Badly at first because um, because I need affirmation. I'm not really an extrovert. I get my energy from people, but I like to know I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm not confident. So, so I've learned and adapted my behavior because one of my personal needs is to work with people. I have to learn how to work with people. Therefore, when somebody tells me I'm not doing it well, it hurts. That's okay. Don't be afraid to be hurt. That's fine. I don't mind being hurt. But I'll think and reflect on it and move on. Yeah? And and do things differently. So I I became very focused on um, adult-to-adult conversations, not being hierarchical, asking for feedback. Um, checking why I was doing the right thing, checking people were bought into the approach, being team orientated. Um, but I realised how important it was for people to understand the context of what they were doing so they could perform well. I always wanted to know why I was doing something, not necessarily how, because I thought I was smart enough to work out the how. And then I thought, well, if that kind of works for me, why does it not work for other people? And that's okay. But actually, you've got to kind of check it's working for them as well, <laughs> because you might have misread them. Yeah, so I, so I, I kind of got self-reflective about it, let's put it that way, yeah. And then learnt from that. Right. Oh, that's good. So, so in terms of your work, there are obviously things that kind of give you energy and things which probably, you know, are more difficult. What, what do you think is the one thing that... Um, you find most rewarding or you have found most rewarding in your your job so far when you're part of a team you really deliver something everybody knows it was difficult everybody knows it was a tough challenge but everybody knows that they were individually an integral part of delivering that mission you know um, and is there an, an example you know, sort of supreme example that you look back and you think we needed everybody. In yeah, that. yeah. Um, so um, I, for all sorts of reasons, which are a long story, um, I was given um, the huge privilege to be the head of operations of the Sellafield Mox plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could do a whole different recording on why, but but in essence, the, the plant was was struggling, it was very late, it, it couldn't get through commissioning, it was under huge pressure, it was very political, and um, people were kind of browbeaten a little bit. The morale was very low. And it was a hugely important project at that time for Sellafield, for government, but not least of all for the people in West Cumbria. Um, and I was kind of given this role um, right at a critical time where it was kind of, well, if, if, if we don't get something out of this plant and we get it and we don't get it to work in some way, shape or form and um, within 12 to 18 months, it'll close. Right. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And that would have, that would have directly 
taken maybe a thousand people yes onto into a redundancy position so um I I was appointed that from a few levels down in the organization. I was kind of gifted that mission, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I thought very hard about the team dynamics and who I wanted in my leadership team. Okay. Who were my reports, who were not my reports, how they would play. Um, I, I never wanted people to agree with me. Right. I always wanted collective challenge. Yes. And I wanted us to, want, you know, I wanted collective challenge and I wanted us to have hard times because I knew we would have hard times, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. lots of good people have tried to make this thing work for a long time and hadn't done it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And lots of good teams had been sacrificed with this. So I built a leadership team very quickly. In fact, before I was given the role, I was asked who I wanted before I took the job, okay. which was good. Yes. Um, so I, had my, so I had now got my own team and then, and then I did something really interesting. Um, I went and spoke to the shop guys and said, what are the things that you really want? Hmm. And they said, um, we want to understand and have a consistent direction and we want to be responsible for our own, our own areas. Okay. So now we get into the interesting point about empowerment. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I did a really interesting thing. I banned all senior managers from going in the plant. Right. Okay. I actually prohibited, brave. so that's come through me. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the interesting thing, Andy, if you're in a struggling environment, everybody wants to help. Yes. So you get lots and lots of senior people and clever people walk into, say, a factory and go, well, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, try this, try that, try this, try that. Now, so who's actually in charge? And what you actually do is you take ownership away from the people who really know what they need to do. Not necessarily how to fix it, but want to own the problem yes. because it's theirs. Yes. It's their it's theirs to create or to lose. And they're the most invested. Yeah. So I banned people going in. And I appointed area leaders and said, you know, anybody comes in here, you are the absolute kingpin, including me. I have to mm-hmm. ask your permission to come in and you have to know why right. I'm coming in. Yeah. Because I want very clear lines of ownership. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip side of that is you can't tell somebody they're in charge of something and then not help them. No, of course not. So empowerment is not a one-way street. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Okay? No. So then the next question is, and then so the second question is, so what do you need to fix this? And they said, well, we need the best people. So we found the, the bottleneck of the plan, and we said, we're, not, we're going to focus on very simple things. Mm. We're not going to plan. We're not going to strategize. We're just going to do some stuff because we need some wins. What's the problem to fix? We'll fix something. Yeah. 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 And the guys told us, because um, they knew. I said, okay, what do you need to fix this? Well, we need a bit of time, and we need a break from the planning, in incessant cycles of people thinking they can plan their way out of trouble. Right. Um, I said, okay, I can do that. How long do you need? Two weeks. Okay, I'll give you a month. Right. And who are the people? And they gave me three or four names. I said, okay, that's your team as of Monday. Um, and away we went. Right. And you know... When you're in real difficulty, people come up with some very clever theories about how to fix things. So mm-hmm. in operations, that's often things like uh, Six Sigma or <laughs> just-in-time manufacturing or statistical process control. So we boil that down to and said, you know, what's the way to fix the problem? What's to know, how do we know we're going to improve? And it's not a Six Sigma program when you're in real trouble. Yeah. And, they bought, and the guys on the plant said, you know what? We have to put our hands into a glove box to keep this thing working too often 
And I said, how often is too often? And they said, all the time. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. They said, yeah. And that breaks beams and it stops the plant and there's safeguards and interlocks and we just cannot keep doing that. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I can't override the safety systems, guys. We're never going to do that in this industry because we can be late, but we're never going to hurt anybody. I'm not no. going to hurt anybody. And they said, no, I agree with that. We don't want to hurt anybody. Great. So you know how we measured the performance for the first month? Um, so the problem was we don't put... The, the measure was how often do you put your hands, hands in a glove box? Mm. And we had a whiteboard and a felt pen and we managed the number of interactions per shift. Yes. And we got it from an interaction every 18 seconds to an interaction every 10 minutes. Right, wow. Uh, and that was good enough to move it on. Good. And then we started to get a little clever. Yes. So the point there is sometimes with people when you're in trouble mm. and you've got to do something and you're a little bit uncertain, don't think too far ahead. Mm. <laughs> don't get mm. yourself wrapped into a, into a, a two-year plan or an 18-month plan. Think, right, what do I need to do to do something and be positive and be moving forward? Because people get energy from that and teams get motivated because they see a win. Um, well, they do, and the thing that really strikes me about that example, I'm just wondering whether you know that trusting and listening and giving control to those that really understood the problem, you know, is is quite unusual in my experience, and it's in fact it's something that we're trying to do more of. Um, and I'm just wondering whether having seen and grown up with your dad and I'm just thinking about him ch- under the car, feeling the size of the, the nuts that he needed, the screwdriver, that taught you that actually there are people who you need to trust because they've got the skill, the experience and the understanding of the problem because they, they've lived with it. Do you think? I, I think there's, a, there's, there's definitely a, a heavy influence of that yeah um but i've always thought you've got this people you've got this team particularly in the industries we i'm comfortable and worked in they always know more than me <laughs> they always know more about their subject than me so the question is how do i engage that and stretch that and develop that little bit so that it's for the benefit of the mission whatever the mission is yeah and you don't ask people to do things they can't do but neither do you restrict them to just the things they know they can do because they never actually explore their capabilities. Exactly. That's just what I was thinking, Rich. It's, it's like where you were saying you, you, you step outside your comfort zone, but not too far. And what you're saying there is, is you're helping people to expand their capability by pulling them, but not too far outside of their comfort zone. And I think that's really, that's a really useful insight. Yeah. So, so I've, mentored happily lots of lots and lots of young youngsters and young grads and people you know hopefully listen to this thing and i always draw a little venn diagram on a board when they talk about the next career move i say okay so what are your core capabilities what are you about what are the options that you've got around that core capability in terms of what potential roles could you take which ones are going to stretch you by 10 or 15 percent but actually no more than that because you might break yourself yeah and and who are the people around those roles and are you going to be working with somebody you can naturally learn from and they can learn from you because you know success is around it's around your capabilities your aspirations and your opportunities and then the support network around the three and i guess the last point on that one is 
I've never really looked too far ahead. I've taken job moves and I've done things in my career. And I thought, what do I get out of this in the next 12, 18 months? Because if you don't think like that going in, you get to the end of 12, 18 months and you've missed it. Or you've taken the wrong opportunity. It's not where's this leading me on my grand career path, because I don't know where my grand career path's going, you know? It's what do I get in the next 12, 18 months? So I'm just thinking back then, if you look back on uh, the young lad who'd not got the grades he wanted uh, to do what he wanted to do at university, and he was just about, he just heard of metallurgy at Sheffield and he thought this looks interesting. What, what would you say to that young man, that young Rich at that point in his life? What advice would you give him? I think knowing what I know now is um, don't be scared to stretch yourself a little. Don't, don't mm-hmm. box yourself into a career path too early. And in your early 20s, get as much experience as you possibly can in as many arenas as possible. That's great. But Rich, that's been, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you and um, some really interesting lessons, you know, from, from, from life and from experience there. So really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Andy. I've loved it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.